Blog Talk Radio. fantasy, no careless product of wild imagination. No, my good friends, these indictments I've brought you today, specific charges listed herein against the individuals, their acts of treason, their ultimate aim of sedition. These are matters of undeniable fact. I ask you now to pronounce judgment on those accused. On this, this mindless aberration, whose only means of expression are wanton violence and destruction. Once trusted by this council, charged with maintaining the defense of the planet itself, chief architect of this intended revolution and author of this insidious plot to establish a new order amongst us, with himself as absolute ruler. You have heard the evidence. The decision of the council will now be heard. Guilty. Guilty. After 1989, President Bush kept said, and it was a phrase that I often used myself, that we needed a new world order. A new world order. A new world, a new world, a new world order.
the way we're going to win over the long term is not just militarily. We've got to give them a stake in creating the kind of uh, uh, world order, uh, world order, uh, world order, uh, world order that I think all of us would like. All right, everybody. Podcasting here. Restoring our republic. Understanding the times we are in today. Let's go back to Vietnam. A little documentary here on Vietnam. Got two ships down, one just crashed and burned. Roger, we're on final to the LZ at the time. I saw one aircraft explode and I saw the other one.
you know, he's teasing me at first. He said, you'll be all right. And, and then this big guy named Chadwick, the dog, they called him, he uh, came over and said, I'm going to train you. I'm going to be with you for a week or two, and then you're going to be on your own. And so um, there's this guy that walked away. He was telling me he was, had 21 days left. He walked away, and I had my M16 in my hand. It was loaded, and I saw a, a goop came in, running in with the RPG, and uh, I just, right there with everybody around, I mean, it was a clean shot, I shot him seven times, but he got the round off, and it and it hit right in front of this guy, and blew both his legs off, an arm, a finger, and an ear, and an eye, and so Chadwick went right up to him, because it was one of his best friends, and he had this little green beret hat on, and he said, Chadwick, if you love me, he says, you'll, you'll kill me because I can't go home like this. He said, okay. He got his 45 out and put it up to his head, and the company commander said, Chadwick, you can't do that. You can't do it. He said, okay. He wants me to do it, but you can't do it. Medics tidied him up, you know, got to stop the bleeding and everything. The guy was conscious the whole time. And a company commander asked me, he says, hey, do you mind uh, go pick up his legs and put them on the chopper? And I said, sure. So I went and picked up his legs, and uh, somebody else picked up the arm, and I put them on the chopper. And the guy told me, he said, he said, he said, thanks. He said, I'm not going home in 21 days. I'm going home now. <laughs> so... That was just my, my first day day in the field, and every day was something like that. When I got off of the helicopter that brought me from the jungle back to L.C. Jane, there was an officer, and he told me I was to get on that helicopter. So I went over and got on the helicopter. I got off of the helicopter in Fubai, and there was another officer standing there, and he said, there's a plane waiting for you. So I went over. I, I went over and got on this plane, and it took off, and I landed in Cameron Bay. And when I got in Cameron Bay, there was an, a jeep with two MPs sitting on it, and they were waiting for me. So I now I still have all my cam. I have my backpack. I'm, I'm ready for battle. I mean, I haven't turned anything in or given anybody anything. I'm ready for battle. And um, the MPs put me in the jeep and said, "Let's get something to eat. And we'll take you over to the to the to the company commander after a while." So I went to a mess hall. This is the first time in six months that I'd had hot food on a table. And I went through, and this was the time that I knew I was not well. This was that defining moment that I knew that I had turned into a, an animal. I went through this line with all my combat stuff on, watching as these guys would scoop this food out and put it on my plate. Everybody in the place was spit, shine, and polished. It was an MP unit. They were all looking good, except me. And I remember looking at the guy who had put some mashed potatoes on my plate, and when I, and he, told, he put this spoonful on my plate and told me to move on. And I remember when I looked at him, he didn't say anything. He just picked up the spoon and gave me some more, and he said, do you want more? I didn't have to say anything to him. I don't know what was in my eyes, but it, I, I, I visibly saw him scared. 
Now I'm at a table, and I have every cold drink they make. I have Kool-Aid and milk and cold water and, and sodas, and I had everything in front of me, and I had this giant plate of food. These three MPs came and sat with me, and I found myself holding my arm around my food down, and I remember this so well, I had a chicken leg, and I was scooping mashed potatoes with my fingers into my mouth. And there was nobody in this place talking. They were all staring at me. And that was the time I I thought to myself, what has happened to me? What has happened to me? And I pushed the food away, and a guy said, come on, we'll go get you some clean clothes. The mess hall's open all day. So he took me over to the shower place, and he went and got some clean clothes for me, and I showered, and I used the entire bar of soap, and I washed my hair, and all the shampoo was, I used all the shampoo, and I had hot water, and I just stood there trying to rationalize what has happened to me. And um, I got some clean clothes, and I went back to the mess hall, and I tried to be a little more civil. I put my stuff down. I never let go of my weapon, though. I, I, there wasn't anybody in there armed but me, and there, no one was taking my weapon. As much as I was trying to rationalize the fact that I'm in an environment that I don't need this, I was not going to let it go. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, and the title of my book is Back from More, Searching for Life After Death. Because how in the world do you do that? How do you turn the switch off? And I don't know how you turn the switch off. And I've told a lot of people I was a very serious college student by day and a drunk by night. I mean, and I didn't go to the bar to socialize. I went to the bar to get drunk because the nights are the worst. You know, the nights are when you have uh, all of the big attacks and everything else is at night. And uh, you can survive in the daytime and you can go to school and you can study and you can do that. But sooner or later it's going to get dark. And when it gets dark, the nights come out. And, and uh, yeah, when you go to bed, you you can't turn that switch off, and that's when the nightmares. And when you're there, nobody really wants to learn who you are for the first three months. They call you newbie. And there's a reason for that, because if you're going to die in Vietnam, you're going to die the first three months because you're new and you don't know how to react or what to expect. We had picked up a uh, airborne, rather large African-American young man out of the, uh, I think it was 101st, and he had been hit with our own napalm on a short napalm round. We got him into the hospital, and, you know, he was still breathing and everything, and our, the medic, you know, we were, we did everything we could to get, you know, get an airway going and everything. When they got him there, the people from the hospital came out because we called ahead of time to tell them we had a burn, a severe, severe burn. And somebody from the hospital commented and said, just take him to Graves Registration. And out of this charred mass of humanity came this guttural sound that I will never forget. Hair standing up on my arms to this day. I airborne. I ain't dead yet. And they moved into the hospital so fast. Those stretcher bearers ran with him. I can remember this sergeant that uh, died in my arms. 
<clears throat> Never shall forget that. He, he had lost both of his legs. And uh, the only question, the only thing he was really concerned about, he was dying in shock, both legs gone. He was saying, uh, sir, do I still have my family jewels? I don't know whether you can put that on, on tape or not, but you know what I mean by that. And that's the first time. That I lied to one of my soldiers. No, son, you're going to be all right. And of course, he was, and he died right there at home. I was teaching my, my co-pilot to be an aircraft commander, so we had traded seats uh, that day because he was going to fly as the aircraft commander. I was checking him out. I was the tactics instructor pilot. And uh, uh, he'd been hit, but I didn't know how bad. Uh, and so he started yelling out that he was hit. And the, I saw the aircraft, the, all the lights were on. The, the, it was just a big mess there, and there was, the blood was being blown around by the, uh, by the wind. We was on a recon, like I said, and I was talking to him one minute, and I heard a and the next minute his head was on the ground. Uh, you can't forget things like that, and especially it's it's hard, you know, when you're in combat like that because you do make friends. You got a bond. We had a bond between us. We protected each other. We took care of each other, and it's hard. That's why I say you don't have to be wounded. Everything is here. It stays there. We would always, after combat, when you lose so many men, we would come back to the rear, take our bayonet, stick our weapon in the ground, put the helmet on top of the weapon, the boots, and we have our ceremony uh, to honor our dead. And... That was a time that that really touched because we knew we had an awesome task to pack that fellow's belonging up and ship it back home. That was probably some of the toughest things that I had to do. Sometimes you, it's hard to talk about that. It's, it's, so I threw the rifle down. And I went in to start to help, and the first guy we got was Sergeant Holloway. And he's a blue-eyed American guy from Hawaii. I mean, the perfect Marine. And he had a bullet right in his head and right in his forehead. And the lead aircraft went in, picked up the troops, and as he came out, he lost power, rolled back down in the LZ, rolled over and burned, crashed and burned and trapped the crew chief, and he died in flames. I think finally somebody shot him. Three days later, they were looking for somebody to go in back in and pull him, get, bring him out, and I said, I'll go. And we had to hover in the hole because aircraft was still there, dropped down ropes to have him tie him, where they didn't even have him in a body bag. I still smell that. As a commander, one of the things that I did, 
I made sure that anybody that was killed in my unit got a letter home from me. And as a young 21-year-old lieutenant, going into my tent or my track, wherever we were, and sitting down and having to write 10 or 15, in that one case, 20 letters that night, and trying to make some sense and trying to give some comfort to the people at home who have lost these is, uh, uh, that's something that I'm sure I probably failed at because I don't know how I could ever give them any comfort. Uh, but then I, I really tried to end on a personal side because I was so close to all my men that every one of those guys had something that was unique to them that I loved about them and liked about them. And uh, I tried to bring those into the letter to let these parents or wives or whoever it may be that I was writing to know how special they had been to me. And, that, and that's the one thing I wanted to, to, to leave with them is that uh, even though they were gone, they would have they would never leave me. And which is demilitarized zone, all the way down south to a city called Dukfo, uh, on that, which was the bottom region of a province called Quang Nai. And Quang Nai was actually where Ho Chi Minh was born. Of course, the Vietnam War was a period that went essentially for us as a combat role from 1963 to 1973. 1973, after the Easter invasion, we had very, very small troop numbers. So in, at that point after that, we really didn't have effective combat units after that. So essentially it was a 10-year war. The 1960s was a, was a time of major transition in so many different uh, things. From the standpoint of uh, family issues, uh, a lot of people were growing up so fast, uh, there was a lot of racial tension at home. The mood of the country you could see change. Um, in the mid-60s, as the buildup started, it was very supportive. Um, and then you started like you have now. You started getting um, people protesting. Um, there was a lot of upheaval in society back then, in general. The concept of going into Vietnam was, for many people, was not a good idea. But as an officer in the Army, I uh, took an oath that I was going to serve my country. And as long as I was in uniform, I intended to uh, fulfill that obligation. And so I wasn't going to let some somebody else deter me from that as long as I was uh, willing to serve, and I did voluntarily go. Well, you know, I think there's, because of the nature of the of Vietnam, it was different than Korea in, in World War II in that there really were no battle lines. There was not, you know, okay, don't come across this line. And the enemy was everywhere from uh, the beginning of South Vietnam down south around Saigon up all the way to Hanoi. World War II was absolutely a declared war when we were fighting uh, America was behind America. Um, 
the fighting forces. So you had total support. We knew in Vietnam that we weren't getting that support, so that was a little disgruntling. We couldn't understand why they couldn't see it over here in the States our way. But we had a whole different perspective over there. Vietnam was a way to show the communists what we were willing to sacrifice for democracy. We went to Vietnam to help the South Vietnamese people who were being overrun by the North Vietnamese. And it wasn't just a civil war then. South Vietnam was a separate, independent government. It, was a, it may have been an extension of the French, but it was an independent government being overthrown by force of arms. And we had a duty to help them. And we did help them. We did well. But the bottom line is, you know, people get tired of war after a long time. Our purpose there was to try to stop the spread of communism so that our kids and their kids would have a better place to live. I felt like it was a, a obligation and a duty to serve my country because they was, at that time, talking about communist aggression, and we also had the bail pigs in Cuba, and the United States was over there in the advisory role, and Vietnam had begun to escalate. They were looking at uh, different things, and there was this fear of a thing called the domino theory, and the domino theory is that if one country fell to communism, all the others would. North and South Vietnam, by a, uh, a, an agreement, uh, had a parallel line where they separated North and South. The North was automatically recognized as going communist. The South was supposed to have three groups, and they were going to have elections. Back then, it was a domino theory, you know. You went over there to stop communism, you know. We went over to help the people, you know. And uh, that's how we felt, you know. I, I actually volunteered to go to Vietnam. We were fighting, and what we were told we were fighting for was to keep the communists out of the control of the South Vietnamese. And that was the reason we were there. There was a dividing line, which was the DMZ, and our government had us there to try to keep the, the people from taking over the South. Okay, flight. we got fast movers flying low this high. Just a little before Christmas in 1967, I was sent to Vietnam. When I left home, you didn't even, I didn't even know where I was going. I was going to Vietnam. That's all. And so it was on our mind. We knew we were going to go to Vietnam. That, was, that, that wasn't even a question. We knew that's where we were headed. But I knew that there was a war going on and that there was a fear that I would go. So uh, I uh, was one of the ones that had to go. So uh, when they told me to pack up, I packed up. And then when I got drafted, I accepted it and, and uh, actually got my draft notice the uh, day before Christmas in 1967, which wasn't uh, the best of timing. But after that was over, then I went to my AIT, um, went home on a weekend pass and married my high school sweetheart and um, uh, brought her back down to Fort Lee, Virginia with me. And we lived there for a couple months until um, I uh, got my orders to go to Vietnam. I decided to, to stay in ROTC and achieve a commission. When I made that decision, I knew that uh, I would be going to Vietnam. It was just a matter of time. When I got drafted, I had no regret that I was drafted because I, I felt that it was my duty more than anything else. That just, your country, they, they call you, you go. I don't know. I had a story, and I love my country. And I wanted to serve. I wanted to do my part. I wanted to do my duty. That's why I joined. Well, out of, out of high school, Vietnam was beginning to be, you know, we were reading about it in the paper, and I knew about it. And uh, all my friends from high school, uh, it was either 
you're either going to go to college or you're going to get drafted. And uh, for, for, for those of us who couldn't either afford to go to college or weren't able to go to college, um, we were really faced with being drafted. Vietnam was really hanging over us like a black cloud. All of our friends were there. You saw it on the news every night. It was The newspaper was filled with uh, stories of Vietnam and pictures of wounded soldiers and soldiers in battle. And it was a thing that uh, Rod and I knew we were both going to go to just because of our age and, and uh, the amount of uh, people that were going to Vietnam. It just uh, was kind of a relief when, when I was drafted because I knew the waiting was over. But when we went in, call it immaturity or stupid or whatever or just ignorance, but we wanted to go. I mean, my dad was in the World War II. He was a paratrooper. So it was a commendable, honorable thing to do was to go to the military. Even though there was a lot of people at that time that felt that was wrong, my upbringing and stuff, it was commendable. And you you got to have that feeling because we don't want to have a breakdown in the uh, military strength and we won't have our freedom forever. But I thought, you know, I can't, I can't go to Canada and come back here again. It's my country, so I'm going. My father, like I said, had been in combat as a pilot. Uh, he, his only advice to me the day I left was, uh, no matter what happens, don't give up. That was good advice. The bird coming into the LZ took fire. His paddle stuck. He was trying to get back to the airfield. He had very little control of the aircraft. Well, I think that one of the things that sticks in my mind more than anything else is when I stepped off that plane, I thought I was going to die from the humidity. It smelled like smoke, burnt. Everything seemed to smell like it was burnt when I stepped off that plane. The first thing to get you is the heat and the humidity. And then you look around and people are moving all around and stuff, and you have no idea what you're doing or where you're supposed to go. The heat. Plus the smell, you know, and that was the main thing you had to get rid of, right, you know. It was really a culture, uh, in a way, a culture shock, you know. And when I first stepped off the airplane, it was the worst smell I'd ever smelled. And we found out later why. But the smell of kerosene burning is everywhere because, uh, in, in most places, because there's no facilities, no toilets. The odor and the heat and the humidity... Oh, it hit me like a sledgehammer because the smell smelled like, best described as death. So I wasn't on the farm anymore. As you looked around and the guys that were just coming in country, you could, you could see it. It was just the same feel among all of us. We all were scared to death. And when we got off the plane in Vietnam, the first thing they do is hand you your gear or what you're going to have. And they handed me M16, said, y'all going in the field in an hour. If you lasted three or four months, usually you'd make it. That was the norm in Vietnam. If you got by the first three or four months and were smart enough to stay alive that long, you usually made it the rest of your tour. During my first firefight, I realized that this is for real, that, you know, there's no going home. You know, once that first shot is fired, no matter who fires it, the adrenaline starts going, and you just instinctively know what to do. You had no idea what you were getting into. As much as you may have felt you were prepared for it, it was something totally foreign to anything 
probably most of us had ever experienced. And it was just the unknown. 20 hours earlier, you were in the United States. Uh, you get on a plane, and you get off, and, you know, it's, it's a whole new world, and you're, you're apprehensive, you're nervous, you're scared, and uh, it, it just all comes down on top of you when you walk down those steps. We landed, and uh, I'll, I'll never forget that when we landed and I walked off the back of that plane, I think that was the day that I realized that, hey, this is, this is Vietnam, and this is not going to be so good. This is the, the outcome is not going to be so good. And I could just feel the fear. The fear started welling within me that, at that time that, that I'm sure that uh, a lot of our, I, I think the soldiers who on D-Day, when they were on those, on those landing craft headed for the beach, knowing that there were going to be casualties, I, I for the first time felt like that I was not invincible that I was going to be part of something that I could very well lose my life easily. Uh, that traffic is uh, to the south of the LZ, making right traffic inbound, landing to the east and departing to the east, uh, staying over the high ground upon departure. Well, I think uh, any 20-year-old uh, uh, helicopter pilot is going to tell you that he was full of piss and vinegar and he was uh, ready to to accept the challenge. When you're young, you're bulletproof. Everybody feels that way, you know? Well, when I got through with my training, I felt like I could do anything. I could walk on water. I felt like a bullet could just bounce right off me. I felt good about being a soldier. We were kids, okay? We were boys. We were 19 years old. In a lot of cases, the South Vietnamese Arvins were 15, 16, 17 year old. They were babies. I mean, I thought I was really grown up at 19. I thought I was immortal. Most young men think they'll never die, you know. Uh, I learned pretty quickly that, yeah, you can die, you know, and it can happen pretty quickly. Most of us, we just never thought we could die. You know, we were, were young guys, you know. Uh, when you're 20, 21 years old, 22, you really can't die. I mean, other people die, but you can't. So only when you get older, I think you realize that, geez. I think everybody, when you're young, feels invincible. I think after like that thing, then you realize, damn, that was a that was a close call, you know. And that and, uh, the feeling of invincibility, I think, is part of being young, which is why the military likes young people. Um, you do things when you're young um, that 20 years later, if you were confronted with the same situation, you might think about it before doing it, but you just react it. I mean, you're young then, and it's like. It's just like kids today. We think we're going to live forever. Nothing's going to hurt me. We knew that at any moment we could we could be killed or die or get injured, but we never spoke about it. Things you took for granted. You see, an amount of seconds you see can be taken away from you. You know. I think the good Lord gives us the capability of as young 19, 20, 21 year olds uh, to feel invincible. So I did not see a lot of fear in the uh, in the soldiers. I think I, what I did see was a lot of uh, camaraderie. I saw a lot of uh, uh, of let's take care of each other in uh, in the combat situation. We intend to convince the communists that we cannot be defeated by force of arms. I have today ordered to Vietnam the Air Mobile Division. Huey uh, was the workhorse of the Vietnam War. 
uh, it was also the Cadillac of helicopters at the time. Here you are, 20 years old. They give you, at that time, a $250,000 uh, aircraft and say, go out and fly the daggone thing. So uh, it was great. Had it not been for the helicopters, I don't think we could have fought Vietnam. It would not have been possible. It was an invention that its time had come. It was really the thing to do. The helicopter was like the Jeep and the truck. So since there were no roads, you couldn't get around. The only way to get people in and out of the company was by helicopter. The only way to get people on top of the hill was by helicopter. The helicopter was a huge part of our operation. Uh, we were a mechanized unit in that we had uh, armored personnel carriers, uh, M113, the armored personnel carriers. We were a mechanized unit, but uh, probably at least 50% of our operations were airborne or air mobile operations with the uh, Huey helicopters. And the helicopter was a helicopter war. The helicopter brought in uh, food, mail, uh, hauled out wounded, hauled you to R&R. It was uh, the motor transportation around Vietnam. Once you boarded the helicopter, you knew when you get off, generally it's not going to be good. Uh, and, and so I had a very uh, a love-hate relationship with the helicopter. I loved to see them coming in to pick us up. but uh, I had two feelings when I saw the helicopters. They, I knew when I got on one that I was going out uh, somewhere, and this may be the last ride of my life, or they picked me up and I was going back to a camp somewhere, and I and it was like a a mom giving you a hug and bringing you home. It was, uh, it was a good feeling when we were on the choppers and flying back to uh, LZ Jane or Camp Evans or one of the larger bases because you knew you were going to be relatively safe. We loved the Huey helicopter. That helicopter took us into battles. That was our steed. That was our horse that took us in, and they were, they were good machines. The Huey is the most under-decorated soldier in the Army. You, uh, you talk to the troops on the ground, and they say that that was one of the best sounds that they have ever heard is, uh, because it meant that they were either getting out or they were getting chow or they were getting something uh, uh, out there. Uh, uh, so the sound of the, of the Huey helicopter is, uh, is very unique uh, and very much representative of the, of the Vietnam War. I think the thing that I still cannot get over today is the sound of the blades of that helicopter. That is, that is a sound that uh, if a helicopter flies over today and I hear that sound, uh, I think I get two immediate reactions. Number one, I love the helicopter in that when it was coming to get you out, that, that was the most wonderful sound you could ever hear. But on the other hand, when you're standing on the tarmac waiting for the helicopters to pick you up and you're all uh, lined up <clears throat> by about five to six men in a group, because that's how many they would haul, uh, you know that the only way you're getting off that helicopter is probably going to be in a hot zone or in a combat situation because they don't like just dropping you off. As an officer, uh, that time waiting for the pickup, uh, I spent a lot of time studying my men. You, you look at the facial expressions of your men. Uh, typically, it, it was not uncommon for somebody to walk over to the edge of the paddy dike and, and throw up because of the nervousness. Yeah, it was the ultimate rush. Uh, those who were really there found out soon that uh, it was the scariest thing you did, but it was also the biggest rush you ever had in your life. And then when you really got into combat and you really saved lives, it really meant a lot. Then you really understood where the training came in and what it was for. It's the sound of that Huey that never leaves you. 
I still flinch now when I hear them. Just uh, a sound that you just don't really forget. Now, I couldn't tell. Could you tell if he was operational IPM? Uh, he was an operational IPM. It looked like he uh, took it in and uh, flare. But he set it down. The one, uh, they called us dust off. And uh, we'd fly him back into the uh, hospital and then would take him off of that. They'd come out with gurneys or whatever that we had to, or stretchers, and we'd put them loadable in the gurneys and even take them, take them on into the uh, 12th evacuation hospital tents. The uh, medevac crews were uh, amazing people, not just for myself. I'm talking the whole uh, medics, crew chiefs, and pilots alike. Um, maybe best to describe it, the Latin underneath our unit crest said, uh, excuse my Latin, ut ali vivam, so others may live. That's basically it. Uh, we flew day, night, single ship, unarmed, combat missions, rain, didn't matter. Uh, we'd go out there. Of all of them, the guys, I guess, that deserve the most respect. If you ever get any of these guys that flew medevac choppers in here, those guys deserve a pat on the back and a handshake because they flew into some situations that you would have never thought they would have had a chance to get out of. Um, they had guts. We did not carry weapons in the units that I was in. We did not carry machine guns because we feel, felt that a door gunner, and two door gunners and the ammo would take the spot of four possible patients. So if it was hot, if it was a hot LZ, we'd ask for gunship support, and they would be there. When we got there, they would hose down around where the enemy was firing from, and we would come in and land and take off and, and get out. Boy, these helicopter pilots, and particularly on these medevacs, when you, when you call for a medevac, you got a guy who goes down, bam, and I had guys go down from booby traps, uh, whatever, uh, and instantly the first call is to a medevac, get those medevacs in. You say, did it affect you? Yeah. You know, the medic could reach over and tap me on the shoulder and say, you know, slow down, slow down. I lost him, meaning he, you know, the guy, had, well, he lost him, in the, you know, lost him. He died in the back, so slow down. Don't kill us all just to get this guy back. He's already dead. And uh, I didn't, you know, you'd cry. And then after a while, after about six months of that, you don't cry anymore. You just do your job. A medevac was successful in Vietnam a lot of the times. The survival rate of soldiers in Vietnam was increased dramatically because of the ability to medevac them back to a hospital uh, quickly using the helicopter. From the time we would pick a wounded up, it would, a wounded individual, it would be no more than 15 minutes, and we could have him at 85th evac. And they could have him in surgery within another 15 minutes, depending on the number of casualties that were brought in. It would be staggering how many lives, I'm sure, were saved by how quick those medevac guys came in. And when they came in, it was not always the best situation. But, boy, your thought is get that guy out and get him out of here and get him into the reserve and get him on that operating table. We didn't make just a nice, uh, casual approach into any LZs. Uh, it may not have been declared a hot LZ, but regardless, uh, we just assumed the bad guys were there. So uh, medevac pilots uh, pretty much all use the same approach. We would basically bend the helicopter over on its side and put the collective down and basically dive it straight down, sometimes maybe turning a little bit just to maneuver, get down to within 50 feet of the ground, level off, and then come into the LZ high speed. So as soon as we uh, the skids would touch, the crew chief and medic uh, would jump out, 
they'd start loading uh, litters first. The top litter would go on first and so on down for a total of three. The third one would sit on the floor. If there were ambulatory patients, those that could walk, uh, they were assisted either by the ground units or the medic or crew chief on their side of the aircraft to get in uh, to the uh, two seats along the transmission well. We tried to buckle them in, but a lot of times we didn't have the time. As soon as they were on, uh, they'd sit down, pull the door, strap to pull the door shut, yell, go, 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 and then we'd uh, pull pitch. I saw several of my friends killed and wounded. But you can't dwell on it. You can't let it get in you because it just makes you not be able to do your job the way you need to. I had become, I'd become an animal, really. I, I, I didn't have feelings. I, when you have so many around you that are killed, you don't have time to mourn for them. You don't have time to worry about them. You can't think about them. And this could be somebody that you just had sea rations with a, an hour earlier, and now they're gone. And, and if you don't stay focused on what you need to do, you're going to die too, and you just... And it happened so much in such a short period of time that I, I, I had no feelings towards it. I really had become dead inside. When you kill your first person, that's hard. The rest of them come easy. That's a sad commentary, but that's true. It, it, you get to the point that you know you got to survive. Kill him, or he'll kill you. And the numbers add up, and it becomes commonplace. Uh, in combat, you really, you never worry really about dying. Not really. You only worry about losing a limb, a leg, two legs, your arm, or you get injured or that type of thing. And you never think about it until it's all over with. We, we've become proficient after we started making one or two kills a night and kind of got used to it. You didn't feel good at first. Yeah, after the first couple of times, but then we were in a position that we were making kills so regular that we never had time to even stop and think about it. You can't let it bother you because you see it every day. You don't get used to it, but you don't like it. Combat is a survival. Uh, you put in a situation, and then you start reacting at the moment it happened. Uh, you start firing your weapons, making sure your men are covered. You cover your flanks to your left, your right. Uh, you deploy your men in, in areas that they can put down the maximum firepower so you can uh, overtake or, or engage your enemy more powerfully. Combat is total chaos and confusion. You have to be well-disciplined and trained to keep your your wits about you when you come under fire. Men are screaming, men are dying. Uh, people you count on are wounded. Uh, and you don't know when you're gonna be next. Combat brings you together in a way that you just can't imagine. There are no race lines. When the bullets are flying and the stuff is really hitting the fan, there's no Mexican, there's no black, there's no Caucasian. You are just all brothers and sisters. Your job was go there to fight, to kill, you know, and uh, basically that's what we had to do, to keep my sanity and 
to do my job, I didn't. I try not to make friends with anyone. It hurts because you 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 lose someone and you you literally it doesn't hit you until after the fact, after the battle is over. A lot of times you're not afraid when it starts to happen. It, it's just afterwards, and you sit down and you have to real come down the real world and say, "Oh my God, that could have been me." During the battle, there's no fear. I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. But as soon as the first shots fired, it's all it's you're 100% adrenaline, and there's no fear. You just know what you have to do, and you do it. Conversely, the next day when combat is broke, you're policing up the wounded, the adrenaline's gone, there is such a terrible letdown, you, you can't believe it, you just, you just, you just sit, and you can't, it's like you can't move, and, and you're drained emotionally, you're drained uh, physically. Combat is chaos, no matter how you look at it. The difference in Vietnam is we kept having chaos over the same piece of land over and over again. You fight for it, you go away, you come back, and then you fight for it again. And when Patton roared through France, he left behind him free France as he went through France. The book, We Were Soldiers for it Once and Young, Colonel Moore put it, we were fighting for each other. We were, we were there for, for, our, for our buddies, uh, doing what our country asked us to do. You're fighting for the guy next to you, whether you know him or don't know him, because that's what you were trained to do. Each Purple Heart, I can name a lot of my friends. Troops, I wasn't aware that we were really being told, you know, why we were there or what the purpose of it was. It was only after the war that I really understood what that conflict was all about. And so as a result of that, many of us became demoralized. We saw a lot of the troops get into drug and alcoholism and drug use. And uh, it, was, um, it was discouraging because we felt and we could see it on the ground, and we could see it really in our operations, that we were being micromanaged by politicians. They weren't letting us win the war. We were all aware that we could win, and we could win quickly, because we had such an advantage just in terms of sheer firepower and technology. But we were being micromanaged to a degree that we weren't allowed to really have those decisive victories, and the, you know, part of that reason uh, was the you know, constant presence of reporters that uh, were telling the story back home. I had a job to do in Vietnam, and politics wasn't anywhere in my vocabulary. My job was to get these guys home, and that was my job. To this day, I don't think we lost that war militarily. I think we lost that war politically. The military didn't lose that war. 
The politicians lost that war. We won the war, but Congress lost the peace. The soldiers are the ones that win your freedom for you. The soldier won the war. The government didn't. We had a job to do, and we did it. They lost millions, and we lost over 58,000. So look at that kill ratio. And if the politics had stayed out of it, we'd have kicked our asses and come home, and it would all been over with. But that's the problem with every war is the politics in it. flag is the only symbol on this planet that represents the opportunity for any human being who plays by the rules to achieve anything on planet earth they want to achieve. You can be the greatest artist, you can get as rich as you want to be, you can be the greatest teacher, you can research and do anything you want when that flag is what you pledge yourself to. I cry every 4th of July. When I see the flag, it does something in my heart that, uh, because I think God has blessed this great nation. I think that, uh, I think that there's some very special purpose that he established this nation for. And that flag represents freedom to me. It represents liberty. And each morning, I have one in front of my house, and I make sure it's displayed properly. And I salute it every day because it represents everything those guys have died for. That's the flag in which we fought under of our land, the home of the brave, the land of the free, the home of the brave. That's what, that's what that flag is. To me, that is America. The American flag represents everything as a symbol that I, I think America is. I think the flag is, is a symbol of the United States. It's a symbol... Of, of the people who have fought and died and what what we try to accomplish in the world. The red is for the blood that's been shed through all the wars. White is for the purity. The blue is for our heavens, and each star symbolizes the state. When I see the American flag, it, it gives me a sense of pride, a sense of honor, a sense of dignity, a sense of devotion, love for your country. Even... Now, when I go to a ball game or some kind of event where the flag is raised, I automatically come to attention, place my hand over my heart. If I got my uniform on, I salute. Uh, I do all those things simply because I know that freedom is a price you have to pay. I'm very proud of our American flag. It's a a symbol that's been flown around this world uh, in many situations uh, where we have been called on uh, to protect not only our freedoms, but also those of other nations. It has represented proudly this nation, and it will continue to do so in the future. It represents this country and everything that this country has been through. I think it demands respect. It's a symbol of our freedom. It's a symbol of bravery, of sacrifice, of courage, and freedom. The symbol of strength and a symbol for democracy. That it is a symbol, but it is also something that you can hold up and say, this is what people have given their lives for, and it's a representation 
of this great nation. It's the symbol of our nation. It shows the freedom of this country. It shows that we fly it, we respect it, and we have people in the United States that are willing to die for that flag or that country. When you cover that casket with the flag, that's a, that means a, something to me. It sure does. The red is for the blood that was shed, and there's a lot of it. It's, it's a bonding there that uh, I love, and it doesn't matter who they are. You don't have to have race, color, or creed. Yeah, it's a bonding, and, and you hold it dear, and you can share. You can look at someone and not say a word, and you'll feel a bond immediately, and that's a pride. And so the flag brings that pride because you see it. You saluted it. That is our meaning of our country. For those of us who have fought for it, freedom has a flavor the protected will never know. The price of freedom is written on the Vietnam Memorial Wall. The price of freedom is Arlington Memorial. Price of freedom are those that are willing to lay down for someone they, their life for someone they never met, so that that person that they never met would have the right to do whatever it is they want to do. That's what freedom is. I think the young men in Vietnam, they paid the price, and they sacrificed for many. I know that freedom is a price you have to pay, and I can go back to all the wars that America has fought in that have always been sacrifices and just to be able to serve your country and believe in your country I think we all have to have that kind of belief and inner feeling that America is a country to be proud of I think anyone who has served in military uniform understands more than anyone else what freedom requires. Uh, it requires a lot of sacrifice, not only from the soldier, sailor, airman, marine, coast guard, who physically had to do his duty, but also the families who were left behind to, to, to take care of the children, to, to take care of the house, to take care of their jobs. Freedom for any soldier is valuable. I think when Americans talk about freedom, they don't really understand what it requires to get it and to keep it. Our people of America are just not appreciating what's being done on their behalf right now. I sleep at night. Before I go to sleep at night, I ask God to protect them because I can sleep at night because there's people who are in foxholes or in boxes around the country, around the world, guarding against someone who could come in very easily and, and, and take our lives. We, 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 can't, we, we can't have that. There's just no way we can have that. And it's worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for. And I'll fight for it. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much. 
prospered as no other people on earth. It was because here in this land, we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. The price for this freedom at times has been high, but we have never been unwilling to pay that price. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers bearing crosses or stars of David. They add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. Each one of those markers is a monument to the kind of hero I spoke of earlier. Their lives ended in places called Bellow Wood, the Argonne, Omaha Beach, Salerno, and halfway around the world on Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Fort Chop Hill, the Chosin Reservoir, and in a hundred rice paddies and jungles of a place called Vietnam. Under one such marker lies a young man, Martin Treptow, who left his job in a small town barber shop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. There on the Western Front, he was killed trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. We're told that on his body was found a diary. On the flyleaf, under the heading, My Pledge, he had written these words. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. We must realize that no arsenal or no weapon in the arsenals of the world is so formidable as the will and moral courage of free men and women. It is a weapon our adversaries in today's world do not have. It is a weapon that we as Americans do have. Let that be understood by those who practice terrorism and prey upon their neighbors. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans.
and as a traitor uh, to our Constitution and to our people. Um, anyone who spit upon a veteran uh, uh, is just absolutely disgusting, appalling. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's just, it's just, I just can't, you know, the, and the sickness we have out there in society today, the lack of compassion and uh, the, the zero patriotism we have. Uh, nobody cares. No one's willing to sacrifice um, anymore, uh, especially on the local level. Uh, nobody. Nobody has the courage to stand up to, to stand up to the machine that has been corrupted now. Uh, even when it comes to our flag, when it comes to our country, people won't even stand up for that. You have people telling, you know, destroying American flags, telling people they're they're offended by the American flag. You got ordinances sometimes where you can't hang up an American flag on your front porch. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? There's ordinances, homeowners associations, that would actually come up with a rule that says you cannot hang up an American flag on your front porch. And if you do, you'll be fined. And and if you don't pay that fine, they'll come arrest you. And they'll haul you off to jail. Can you believe that? That's what we have become. That's how, when we lose, when we allow freedom to slip away, and we allow mistakes to happen, and we lose our republic, to regain that freedom, it takes bloodshed, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Because the First Amendment loses its, its, its grasp, its power. Because we take our freedoms for granted. That's why the First Amendment is there, because these word, words are supposed to be powerful enough to move us and make us remember. Remember how the blood has been shed for the freedoms that we have today, that we enjoy today. But the corruption and the greed twists it all around, and, they, and, we take, and, and it's taken for granted. Or it's rubber stamped. Or it's camouflaged, watered down. No, no, no. The Constitution is very plainly written, for, and, and the words speak upon facts that how we're supposed to live and what we're supposed to obey. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. There's no bending. There's no we leave our rights at somebody's front door because this is his problem. No. The Constitution, your rights in America, on American soil are guaranteed by the men that were in this uh, podcast tonight, the stories that they told. Your freedoms are guaranteed because of those men and many before them that have fought and bled and paid the ultimate sacrifice, gave their life. The men in the beginning that, that pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred, everything, sacred honor, their families, their farms, everything. The founders, they, they, after the Revolutionary War, they had nothing. Their farms were torched, burnt down. Their families were gone. They didn't know where they were. They didn't have to be able to text them, text their sons or their wives where they were. They were gone. Farms burnt down. They had nothing. But, but they gave us freedom. They gave us the freedom Oh, yeah, they went to go take the Indians' land. Yeah, the Indians. Yeah. Yeah, I had one I wanted to play there tonight about that. You know, you know there were over 350 different tribes, okay, that were, that were fighting and competing with each other within the Indian lands. They weren't so free and so loving. The Indians weren't all loving each other and, and, and breaking bread with each other. They were killing each other, too, okay? 
So it was bound to happen. And this is our land anyway. And this is the way history played out. This is our land. We're Americans. We we got it. And that's how most of the world has been uh, explored anyway. It's been, lands have been conquered and established, and that's settled. That's just the way the human race has done things since the beginning of whenever. We can argue about that, too, and that's just the fact. We're not going to give anything back. Stop being wussified, and that's one of the downfalls of America now, and as it were, the wussifying of the people, the guilt. We have to be guilty of what? Nothing. What we need to be guilty of is how we act today, feel guilty about, is how we act today towards each other. We cannot erase yesterday. Yesterday happened, and it's the way it is, and that's who we are today. Now, how we're going to act tomorrow is up to us, how we act today, and what we learned from yesterday. Now, you, you know, with all this, all this, we have to give this back, or, or, or like I was listening to this Indian uh, podcast last night. We Americans, are, you know, this guy was just Chief J. Strongbow there. You know, you just got a complete jackass idiot to talk anti-American like that, to spit on our flag, to, to, to detrimentally uh, put down everything about the American people and the American land and culture and way, ways of life, the colonial way of life. Let me tell you something, pal. You should be thankful for what you have. Luckily, because I'm going to tell you right now, the founders who had some compassion, they should have wiped you right off your head, right off to put you back where you came from. Dirtbag. You hate America so much, you hate this land so much, then go someplace else. There are planes that leave every day. Go. Because you didn't originate here either. You weren't born here. You, were, you weren't your people. You weren't, just, you weren't the first man to walk on American soil. The Indians weren't the first people to be here. We all started off someplace other than here. The point of it being is we're here now, so knock it off. Ignorance cannot coexist with, 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 with the American experiment. Ignorance is just a very detrimental part to the sickness we have in this country right now. And we cannot tolerate ignorance anymore. We cannot tolerate false teachings of history. We cannot. It's detrimental to our freedoms. And the sickness that's going on out there right now, especially with these Democrats, just totally, they're just so out of it. It's evil. It's evil. It's demonic. Oh, boy. Let me see if there's anybody here who wants to speak here tonight. I know it was a long wait. So probably had some people there who wanted to chip in. Uh, let's see here. Go back to Europe, you semen-stained, sat, uh, sat water back. Why don't you make me go back to Europe, you dirtbag, you dwelling no good for nothing? All right, all right. Go ahead, 314, you're on. Yeah, I got you back on that one. <laughs> well, how you doing? I'm in the mood for, I'm in the mood for some whoop-ass. Yeah, well, I got one in the chat room here. Europeans were killing each other in religious wars, too. <laughs> When you lose, so you admit that the republic can't be saved. Are those guys delusional, stolen valor, uh, F-buddies of yours? Yeah. <laughs> this is the ignorance in the chat room that I get. This is what I get. The republic's coming for you. The republic's coming for you. Don't you worry. Judgment will come upon you. Don't worry. <laughs> but anyway, how's well, everything know, going there? I'm going to tell you something, too. You may mention about that neighborhood association. 
during 9-11, Congress passed an act that done away with any building permits to put up American flag and really? restrictions in any communities of putting up American flag. And I would bet to say it still exists, too, that Congressional Act. So any association that outlaws the displaying of an American flag, you need to get rid of those people the first chance you get. Yeah, yeah. They're well, they're out there. You know, you've heard them. You've heard them, you know, where, where you see these battles, and you, that, that's interesting. Yeah. See, everybody, see, there's so many unwritten or there's so many written statues and laws that a lot of people lose track of them, and they forget, you know, that, hey, you know, this. But that's a good bill. That's a good law to have, you know. You can't, you know, there's never, ever, the American flag should never, ever, ever fall to the ground, be spat upon, lit on fire. Well, you know, they say that's your freedom of speech, you know. But there has to be some sort of code, you know, where, where you, where you you know, look, where you got to draw the line. I mean, you know, where, where, what's immorality? I mean, how we can we allow freedom, you know, freedom of expression and speech doesn't allow immorality to run rampant either. You know, there has, it's just like the Second Amendment. There comes responsibility with the Second Amendment because you have a, a right to carry a gun. doesn't mean you can fl- throw it up in the air and, well, hey, look what I got. You know, I mean, you guys have a responsibility, you know, common sense, right? Well, you know, here's the thing, too. I don't understand Texas not wearing guns, and you got to run from an idiot that's shooting up people in that damn mall. I, I know. I, I know. I know. Isn't that interesting? That is, that's very it interesting. Is. Did you see the uh, the it SUV is. that ran over the people, the immigrants there down? Uh, I don't know if that happened in Texas or not. Did you see that, that SUV that killed those people? Yeah, I saw that. Oh. So I guess we're going to have, I guess we're going to have SUV reform now, huh? Yeah, how's the gun-free zones working on that one, huh? Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like that one, the, the one black man there in Waskiti, uh Wisconsin, I think it was, uh, that ran over the people in the Thanksgiving Day Parade. You remember that? Yep, yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And the, why come he wasn't charged with a hate crime? I mean, there's so much exactly. stuff going on like they were Want to crucify this Marine? Oh, they were. Oh, they wanted then, to label that a hate crime with the SUV, but then they found out the guy was a Mexican driver. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah and they want to crucify this Marine for taking out this deranged, this deranged idiot on the subway, and he's not the only one. So a lot of them, I've seen one guy was beating up women. You know, that's why I come out and tell women, you need to start wearing that damn weapon or have a boot, uh, have a derringer in your bra. To take these fools out. If not, they're gonna beat the hell out of them. They're gonna kill yeah. you. Yeah, that's right. You got and that right. How many times have we heard of people standing in the subway waiting on the train, and some idiot come up behind them and shove them onto the tracks where they get killed? All oh, the attacks are terrible. They're terrible. I mean, and what, what, what really gets me though is the one in the cars. If these crowds surround you and you're in your car and they're smashing your windows out, trying to rip you out of your car, you drive and run them over, you go to jail. I can't believe, you know, I mean, there's this, that's something. That's, that's what I fear the most because they're going to come arrest me, and then I'm at war with the government, cause, you know, because I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm not going to stand trial for that. I will not stand trial. I will not go through the system on that, that if they arrest me for something. If, if I'm out with my family and, and a mob surrounds my car and they start wanting to beat the windows and try to rip me out of my car and I drive away and I run over a few people, it, hey, as soon as I, you know, if they want, if they want to try to come get me, then that's it. You know, I, that's it. Life's over. I, I'm on the run. 
You know, I got I'm, I'm on the rampage because I have a right to defend myself. You know. Look in Chicago when you had that white female that was surrounded by the black males and they started beating the hell out of her. And she yeah. had a gun. She could at least took out two or three of them. I'm scared too. And, you had, what happened and to you, had a, you, know? you had another in St. Louis. Uh, this white homeless guy was sitting on the curb. This black man walked up and shot him in the head. Wow. Blew his brains wow. out. Wow. There's a lot of that shit going on. Yeah. You got uh, yeah. you got these racist attacks, hate crimes going on. You got these idiots like in the subway going on. I don't know what the heck it is, man. I really don't. The cities are out of thing, control. When I go, I'm gonna be armed. Yeah, the cities are out of control. The cities are out of control. I mean, you look at Chicago. I mean, that's just. I mean, you gotta be crazy to live. I mean, you get caught in the wrong neighborhood. And I always knew that when I went to New York City because I was lived in Connecticut. New York City was not that far away. You know, uh, you know, it was only a forty-five minute drive, and we'd head over to New York City. But man, I always knew that in the back of my mind. And you know, we get caught in the wrong neighborhood here. You know, and you can't get out. It's bumper to bumper. You know, and you get in the Bronx or Queens or something, and, you know, the wrong crowd sees you. That's it. It's all done. They'll attack your car. You know, these mobs. And I remember New Haven, Connecticut, in the Ville. It was uh, it was all-black neighborhood. And, I, uh, you know, I remember going down there one time, and uh, they, they surrounded my car. You know, they were doing that down there. This is in the early 90s. You know, they were just all hanging out on the Let street corners back then. When I, was a, when I was a kid, I was driving with some older guys, and we rode off into Robinson, Missouri, right there off of Lindbergh and McDonald Boulevard. This is a black town. And they pulled our driver out and beat the hell out of him. All of us. Wow. Like, so you get that wow. down, it is. And, and I wouldn't <laughs> worry about the beating. I was worrying about what I'm explaining to my grandfather when I get home. I must have been about 12 or 15 years old. What the hell I'm doing in that community. But you know what else in New York? You had a mob of people get on the tracks and stop the trains. Yeah. Complaining yeah, about this too. man getting killed or dying from, from being accosted by some good Samaritans. They yep. stopped the train, got innocent people, people that are trying to get home from work, and so going to pull them into their protest, whereas they otherwise wouldn't want to be. That's the yeah. audacity of these minds nowadays. I know, I know, I know. Imagine that being on a train and they stopped the train. You're, here you are thinking you're in a safe thing, a train, man. Ain't nobody stopping this thing, you know. And they stop a train and they, and they go into the – and you, you know you're not carrying your weapon because they won't let you have one on there. So now you're screwed. You know, that's what I'm saying. That's what my dad, before he passed away, he wanted to take a train down here. I said, don't do it. Don't do it. You know, and I talked him out of it. I said, you know, if something happens to you, you know, you're not young no more. I mean, you know, this is when, you know, all these attacks are going on in subways and everything and train stations. And, you know, yeah. and you get to Philadelphia, you got a seven-hour layover. What are you going to do for seven hours at the train station? Somebody's going to spot you, you know? Some place, <laughs> men got on the damn train. He robbed everybody, just like the great train robbery back in the old west. <laughs> Went down the house robbing everybody, man. Can you imagine wow. that stuff in 2023, 2022? That's crazy. Yeah, it happened. Getting away with it? Yeah. That's crazy. That's, that takes guts, though, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, they you don't know? care. They don't fear any damn thing. You yeah. can't hurt yeah. them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I don't know what to say, Joe. We got to keep fighting these assholes. That's what the only thing I can say. At least that 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 dummy got killed. Uh, the police took him out in uh, Allen, Texas, with a shot to the head. My commemoration go out to the bold and brave men in blue 
that was able to take that idiot out and, and send him on away. What? What happened out there? What? What, what happened there? That mall shooter. The police took him oh, out. Oh, the mall shooter. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I put a I put a picture on your uh, Twitter page. Oh, okay. I'll check it um, out. The mall shooter. The yeah. There should be a public execution with that guy. You know. Well, I tell you what, if that picture go viral, it will send a message to anybody else that's got that contemplating that in their mind. You're not going to get away with it. And once again, people, especially in Texas, Missouri, where are your weapons and use them? There's no way that man could have got away if you had four or five or six, eight, ten people shooting back at him. Exactly, exactly. You're absolutely correct. I mean, you know, and, and that's the thing. Why, if you can carry, and you, we should be carrying anyway, why are people not carrying and protecting themselves? You know, I thought about that the other day. You know, I said, if somebody comes in and tries to shoot this place up, I could stop them, you know? I mean, you know, and I always think about that now. You know, if somebody, you know, goes, you know, and everyone, and there should be eight or other people thinking the same exact thing. You know, they should be, if somebody tries to walk into a restaurant, you're eating with your family, you should be armed, you should be able to stop them. You know, and schools are so easy to stop school shootings. Look, there's no reason why we should not have armed police officers at those schools. Front and back entrance, you know, and it should go by population ratio, one officer for every hundred students. You know, and I don't have a, that's where I don't have a problem seeing armed guards. You know, at schools. I don't see no reason why there should not be armed security at every single school in this country. There's, there's no reason. And it puts a stop to all the school shootings. It definitely would. Well, yeah, you, and, and they could uh, get them old fire doors that used to be in them factories that's all closed up now and put a fire yep. door on the inside that will roll out, cover that door, latch it on the one side when the alarm go off. That would keep yep. the shooter from coming in at least. Exactly, exactly. There's ways. Said they got these stupid little cheap glass doors on these schools, you know, that you could kick kick a window out if you wanted to. You know, it's it's stupid. They got one. Well, they got one of the schools down here. The buzzer was, you know, uh, they get you. They got a little camera with like those uh, video doorbells. You push the button and they look at you. They don't even look half the time and they buzz you in. You know, ignorant, ignorant. You know, where's the school resource officer at? Oh well, he has he's on his lunch break. There should be somebody here at all times. You know, uh, man, it's just it's pathetic, pathetic. Why would you take a chance? Why? It just doesn't make any sense, man. I just don't understand. And I just now, don't. And, and now instead of instead of these politicians blaming the real problem, the person, they want to blame the gun. They want to blame yep. the gun. No, yep. understand. I let my gun sit there on the foot of my bed. <clears throat> I cock the trigger. I take the. I take the. I want to do a test. I took the ammunition out, cocked the trigger, and slept with it there on my bed. I woke up the next morning, and guess what? The trigger's still cocked. <laughs> exactly. And no anyway, gun shooting itself. You know, look, I get elected to public office. There's a lot of things I'd like to sponsor for legislation, I'll tell you right right now. And a lot of things I think also, just to touch base again on the veterans, I think here in North Carolina that no veteran should have to pay property tax. Uh, uh, on their homes, uh, I think any veteran or or spouse of a veteran or widow or widow widow or you know or should have to ever pay property tax here in North Carolina. Uh, that would be one of the things that I would because uh, no veteran should go homeless. You know, there should never be a homeless veteran on the streets of America. That is an absolute disgrace and disgusting. Uh, somebody who served our country be homeless. It just should not happen. You know, it just should not. 
and no war experiences stay with you forever. You oh, never yeah. leave. And yeah, you will if you listen I mean, to some of those stories. Of, <laughs> Man, look at some people know? that at Omaha Beach that was in those landing crowd. And soon oh. as the gate flopped down, you had bullets coming in and shooting people's heads off, exploding them in front of the yeah. people that was behind them, ready to get off. You never, oh, you never. never forget. I know a guy got shot and his guts was falling out. He had to take his hand and stuff his gut back in himself. He did live. Oh. But you never forget that. You he never lived. forget it. He yeah, lived. he lived. Wow. William wow. King is his name. They're in St. Louis County. Wow. That's got to be the hell of a thing to live with for the rest of your life, huh? Exactly. Oh, man. I was uh, in 60, and during Vietnam, my neighbor, James, he had just bought a brand new Chevy convertible Super Sport, 64. And he went to Vietnam, he came back, was never the same. He'd walk up and down the street from two or three blocks, one direction, turn around, walk back, turn around, go back all day long. He was out of yeah. His mind was gone. Yeah, it happened to a lot of guys over there in Vietnam. I knew a guy, too. His name was Charlie uh, Cacasa or whatever. He, uh, he went over there as a, a good-looking young t- uh, kid, teenager, went over there, smart, college kid, uh, great potential. He came back. He was a mental patient. He just lost it, you know. Just you know, it wasn't the same. Uh, that's what you know. I didn't know. I wasn't born yet, but I remember seeing him in the early 1980s when I was a kid, and I remember my great grandmother telling me that's Charlie. He used to be in Vietnam, screwed him up, you know. And they were telling me the story, and I and they showed me pictures of him when he was, you know, before he went, and then after. Obviously, I saw him, and and he ended up committing suicide. So uh, you know, it's just uh, ugh, it's just you're right. They're just never the same. Vietnam was hell. That was hell. Yeah, Vietnam was hell. I'm be truthful, it's all war is hell. You ain't seen nothing until yeah. you see war. You ain't yeah. seen nothing until the man walking next to you, next thing you see is a blob all splattered up against your body, on your clothes, on your face, his brain. You ain't seen Especially the wars of yesterday. Though, the, the, especially imagine the Revolutionary War, Civil War, World War One. Those must those were gruel. Those the were hand to hand. How would you like to get hit in the thigh with a 20-pound cannonball? It oh, rip you man. apart. And some people survived after that. And the thing that yeah. killed so many of the Civil War veterans was the diseases. The amputation yeah. of the legs and limbs on the, the, the gurney operating table would be on the second floor, and they just throw them out to the window. And after a period of time, the pile of limbs would be up to the second floor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't, you know, if anyone's tuning in, you know, if you missed it, I started, I played a good documentary on Vietnam here tonight, uh, war stories. Uh, these guys were telling stories about what had, you know, real deep stories about Vietnam, uh, stuff that you don't hear about on the 6 o'clock news. And let me tell you, uh, the, the, so many stories were powerful, uh, you know, like I said, very powerful and uh, grueling. And uh, the, the, the detail, how they talked about them, uh, just amazing, amazing. So it was very, very uh, powerful. I made uh, I made my siblings watch that on Saturday. We watched yeah. everything from the Revolutionary War depictions on up through the Civil War into the Korean. I made them watch it all. I made them know the faces and put names to all the, the soldiers that fought in the Civil War, in the yeah. American War. 
Yeah. That's what you're supposed well, to be. I made a study of the Declaration of Independence for Federal Paper, the Article of Federal, all of that. That's yeah. what you're supposed to do. Your child's right. supposed to be immersed in the history of this great nation. If not, they would be targeted, exploited, and used by these idiots out here. And we see them today more so than you ever seen them before. They after your kids. I know. I know. That's why I did I do shows like this. You know, I was going to do one with Daniel Boone, a documentary on Daniel Boone. That's actually a very good one too. Uh, uh, you know, with it, and that depicts a lot of the, the Shawnee Indians that were here. You know, because everyone, everyone's with the Indians. You know, that I always hear that. You know, like we're we're supposed to feel guilty about the Indians. You know, you know, they, they knock it off with that crap. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. They make the Indians out to be these saints, like they were here just to help us. They were waiting for us. And then we just turned our, or turned our, our backs on them and just started attacking them, you know, and persecuting those poor Indians, you know, and the, the evil white European invaders, shame on you. You know, it, listen, man, that's not what happened. Not what happened at all. The, the Shawnee Indians were like savages. Yeah, and yeah. wagon trains of, of settlers just wanted to pass through. You got people today that claim that they – citizens of the world and shouldn't have to have a passport, shouldn't have to have a driver's license. Well, should those settlers who were just trying to trek from the east to the west and go through yep. the mountains and go through the plains being attacked by I, Indians? I've got, uh, I got a couple people here. I, I got Pianchi, I got a couple people with their hand up here. Let's see if anybody wants to contribute here. But yeah, we'll bring them in and see what's going on here. Go ahead, 760. Hello. Yes, hello. Hi there. I, I, I had my hand in my panty earlier today, and I pulled it out and gave it a sniff, and it, it kind of smells like quiche. Does that mean that I have a UTI? Uh, if that's what your main concern is, and uh, do you always call radio shows up to uh, ask those types of questions? I, I haven't really before, but I don't have health care because, you know, we don't have universal health care because the Republicans don't care about the United States citizens. They so don't. I, I, haven't, I haven't gotten checked out. Well, the Democrats are uh, in charge right now. Why, why wouldn't Biden make sure you have health care? Because, unfortunately, the Senate and the um House are all, you know, controlled by the Republicans. Not two years ago, not for the first two years, Biden had the uh, the Democrats that were in charge of the the House, and he had the tiebreaker in the Senate. I mean, uh, uh, then why don't we have universal health? I don't know what happened. I don't know. Well, I thought you Democrats, you know, instead of celebrating know. about the, why don't you get a, get a part time job and buy your own damn health care? <laughs> I, I, I'm 87. I, I, I have they got a something. Walmart, can, Walmart can hire you as a greeter, put you in a chair at the door. There you go. Uh, and then you can check on your UTI. With UTI. Sure, sure. You could, you could, after you put your hand in your pants to check your UTI, you can then reach out and shake everybody's hand at Walmart. <laughs> I, I don't touch other people, not since COVID. Oh, not since COVID, huh? No. Really? Well, well so before COVID, you used to? I mean, so 87 you know, years I, I, old. So 87 years I, old. You're 87 years old, and you're this old, 87, and this ignorant. 
I mean, when are you going to grow up? Probably when I die. <laughs> I don't know about that one, but uh, I'll tell you what. Uh, you know, now I got another. Now they're attacking me in the chat room, saying I'm picking on old women, huh? So, but 87 years old. So you're. So you obviously don't like Donald Trump, right? Uh, you know, I don't really try to think about him. He, you know, he he's gonna ride in a cell before he bugs in hell. Oh and, no, you know, no, he's no! Not no. My time. He's gonna be the next president of the United States. I mean, what are you gonna, what, he, what are you gonna he, say about that? He lost the popular vote the first time and the second time. He only won because of the the electoral college the first time around. Americans don't want him. But that's okay. That's what the Constitution says about winning a presidential election. If you know something about the left, they want to disregard everything, even the Bible. They pay no attention to the Bible. They pay no attention to the law. They pay no attention to the Constitution. My goodness. I mean, what kind of country do you want to live in where you just have, you know, this this type of democracy that you think the majority rules? The majority doesn't rule in a republic. Ideally, I I want to live in a country where our president isn't a racist. Well, why is Donald Trump a racist? Why? No, I said racist. You know, he's grabbing the pussy and touching women inappropriately. Well, you really think that? It takes a woman 30 damn years to realize she's been raped. What is she carrying yeah. around with her? Well, it doesn't take her that long to realize she's raped. It takes a lot of time to build up the courage to come forward, especially with men who are ignorant like you who disparage women for coming forward. I don't discourage women from coming forward. You just you should with the woman. It's just home. like with this case with Mike Tyson. The woman comes down, gets in a cab, and rather than taking the, telling the cab driver to take her to the police station, she goes home and waits years, then come back and says something happened nobody even remember or even witnessed. I mean, you guys want equal rights, you women, but you you don't want but you don't want them to act equally, you know. Y- y'all are so fucking ignorant. It's stupid. We're ignorant. How are we ignorant? You're the I mean, ones disparaging women for coming forward. I am not. I want facts. From 30 years. Listen, if, you, if a crime has happened to a woman, if a woman is raped, I do not condone that whatsoever. But I do, I do, I do, do not support someone playing the system. And that's what those women against Donald Trump are doing. They're playing the system. You have horse-faced uh, Stormy Daniels there, okay, who's a, who's a, who's a porn star, okay, flat-out p- – Piece of crap whore, okay? And she'd have no type of way, so no type wife, of. But you still married her. Well, you don't even know her. So how would you, would you make that comment? You don't even know Stormy Daniels, do you? I know what I hear in the media. I understand. Yeah, you know, a lot of been portrayed all in the, all in the papers and news and magazines. She's openly known as a porn star, so she's a whore. So is your wife. I mean, well, well. Uh, why did you She's grow up a whore? Are you offended like that? Now, now uh, so I mean, are, are you, did you grow up as a whore? Did I? Yeah. I mean, uh, how else was okay. I supposed to make money back in the day? Oh, so know, that's how. I mean, so, I saw, oh, okay. 
I saw Melania's pussy on Google. Would that make her a whore? Well, I don't know. Does George Floyd was a porn star? You have an opinion about the ex-president. I'm asking you about his wife. You know George Floyd was a porn star, too. They called him his his star name was Mr. Landlord. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for that useless information. Yeah, so 87 years old, I mean, and this is, so So, do you feel you've accomplished anything in your life? Are you proud of how you lived your life? Or are you just angry? Well, no, I have a UTI. I know, is that, I know, so I mean, that's the, like the highlight of your life, calling into a podcast show about the UTI, and this is your life at 87 years old. You have, but you, I this mean. This is your life, you're hosting a podcast where you say lots of people are calling in. I'm the only person who's called in. Well, who's on the line with me? You, how could you be the only person when this when I have somebody on the line with me? I mean, because I'm the person you're talking to, baby. No, no. Well, who's the other guy I'm talking to? There's oh, you think you're, you don't know that he's there. You don't even know he's there, huh? There's, Pianke's on the line with me, too. He was my first caller tonight. That's because he was a guest. He wasn't a caller. There's a he wasn't a guest. He's my first caller. No, he's not. Blog Talk <laughs> Radio doesn't allow multiple callers at the same time. It doesn't. Unless it's a guest, and then you set it up originally. Uh, again, I don't know what I you're mean, talking but, about there. Uh, I, multiple callers, I, I, mean, I, think some, I think most of my shows I've had multiple callers. What are you talking about? Are you just seeing yeah, you or do the head? And I know. Call. We've got an 87-year-old that's escaped from a, a retirement home, I think. She, you know, she's on the loose. Is there a silver alert someplace out there? <laughs> I don't know. but So, anyway, so you're 87 years old. You called in with some nonsense here about sticking your hands down your pants, obviously, which, you know, that's pretty disgusting to talk about here on Live on a Podcast Show. And then you'd say Donald Trump's a racist. I mean, you are just got no, one think of the most. No, I he's a rapist. Whatever, rapist, rapist, racist. racist, whatever. It's still made up. Listen, the bottom line is this. No, it's not. Where do you people come from? You've been around 87 years sickening in this country, making this country sick. This, you're detrimental to our society. It's people like but you. But, I mean, at least I didn't storm the Capitol. You didn't storm the Capitol. an election, you know? I mean, come on. It, listen, but the probably thing of it is... You probably stormed the bingo hall. Yeah. You I mean, need to storm if they the get me money to cure my UTI. You need to storm the medication line. Because it sounds me like you need to be on some two. sort of medication. Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. I, I, what do you do? So what did you do for a living, really? You were a prostitute. So you broke the law. You're openly a lawbreaker. Uh, no, prostitution is legal in Nevada. Oh, okay. So you've lived in Nevada your entire life. Okay. Is prostitution legal in Nevada, uh, Bianchi? I didn't know that. Yeah, if you're a working woman. Mm-hmm. Huh. I don't know. I don't entertain such people. Yeah, I know. I mean, so you're obviously immoral. You have no type of moral values whatsoever. Uh, what, when did you retire from prostitution, prostituting? Mm. 2003. When I lost my teeth and 
men wouldn't accept an more gummy. Uh-huh. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. So you have to have teeth to be a prostitute. Okay. Well, right. so that's one of the requirements, I guess. I mean, do you want to... Do you want a gummy? Uh, I don't want a gummy. No, I don't. I don't entertain prostitutes. Sorry. What's what's a gummy anyway? What is that? You know, like when when a, a lady doesn't have teeth and she wraps her gums around your dick and gives it a lovely, lovely. That's what a gummy is, huh? Unbelievable. Yeah. So how many gummies I mean, have you, you given wanna... throughout your life? Probably about 63. 63. You got a dirty mouth. <laughs> Let me tell yeah. you. That's a dirty mouth right there. What are you going to do when you stand before God? What will you say? What will you say? Hi, God. How you doing, baby? I uh, know. I don't think you'll be saying that. You really need to repent and really just really take a hard look at your life and what you've done with your life because really it's pretty pathetic. And I hope you I hope that you have not taught anyone in the younger years or around you or siblings this your lifestyle or 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 any type of values that you know or go by other to other younger people because it's actually a, disgusting. It's pathetic and really you need help. Well, I mean, I was a drag queen back in 63. We had story hours. Story hours. I don't think you were doing story hours in 1963. They wouldn't allow that back then. Yeah, they would. They, we we did an underground and speakeasy. Underground speakeasy. Yeah, lovely. So you're a drag queen, too. So you, you kidnapped some kids and brought them underground, huh? Yeah, you know, like... I would like the drag queen Harriet Tubman. What's your name? That ain't no, there ain't no, there ain't no statute of limitation on kidnapping kids. You know that? Yeah. What's your, what was your detail. stage name? My, my, my stage name is Anna, Anna L. Fischer. Lovely. Well. I don't, you know, if you committed a crime of kidnapping children, you know, I would, I would, I would not advise you to uh, they, uh, be out there bragging about something like their that. Their parents brought them willingly, you know. No, well, the parents brought them willingly. Then the parents, so it doesn't matter. That still would be a crime. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. We, we would just, we would just read them stories, you know, like. One fish, well, two fish, blue fish, and then green eggs and ham. You know, I am. Well, tell us. Well, why don't you? Well, tell us about green eggs and ham. Tell us about that. What is that story? Tell us a drag queen story. Go ahead. I want to hear what kind of stories you told these kids. Well, hang, hang on, baby. Let me start from the beginning, okay? Sure. Hang on. I'm. I'm, I'm getting it. All right. Oh, you got them next to your rocking chair? Yeah. Okay. It's I am Sam. Sam I am. That's Sam I am. That's Sam I am. I do not like that Sam I am. Do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Would you like them here or there? 
I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. Would you like them in a house? Would you like them with a mouth? I do not like them in a house. I do not like them with a mouth. I do not like them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. Would you eat them in a box? Would you eat them with a fox? Not in a box. Not with a fox. Not in a house. Not with a mouse. I would not like that. Would not eat them here or there. I would not eat them anywhere. I would not eat green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam. I am. Would you? Could you in a car eat them? Eat them. Here they are. I would not. Could not in a car. You may like them. You will see. You may like them in a tree. I would not, could not, in a tree, not in a car, you let me be. I do not like them in a box. I do not like them with a fox. I do not like them in a house. I do not like them with a mouse. I do not like them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. A train, a train, a train, a train. Could you, would you, on a train? Not on on a train, not in a tree, not in a car, Sam, let me be. I would not, could not, in a box. I could not, would not, with a fox. I will all not right, eat them right, in right, a right, house. Enough, enough. I will it. not eat them in a house. I will all not right, eat them here or there. I will not eat them anywhere. I do not like them, Sam. I am. There. All right. Oh, my Lord. Wow. What do you think about that, Bianchi? <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, there's one for every day in the week. That, 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 is that really what they are doing with the, on these uh, these drag queens? Is that what they're really doing? Is those the type of stories that they're telling? Well, I tell you what, uh, I don't know. I never, I've never been entertained by them. I mean, I never heard one. That's what I'm saying. I was just wondering. Let me see if it's still going. Not hot green eggs in the hand. She still doesn't even know I hung up on her yet. She's still going on and on. It, whatever it is. <laughs> Wow. Wow. What a pathetic ending to today's show. How pathetic. But it's a good demonstration of how sick our society is. Look what I played earlier. I played the heroes of America, veterans that fought for our flag, our our freedom. And look, and then what do we get at the end? The complete opposite of what what America stands for and about and what it represents. The complete opposite. The sickness in our society, the complete disgusting sickness that just to the extreme, I mean, that's the absolute sickness, this person that called in. Any closing thoughts, Bianchi, to today's show? I mean, I don't know where Sarge is. Sarge is probably not going to call in now after that one. I mean, I don't know where he is. Uh, I I thought if I played Vietnam, he would have called in, but maybe not. I don't know uh, if he's listening or not. Um, 
But, uh, Bianca, give me some closing well, thoughts here. I appreciate with all sincerely all the men and women that sacrifice their lives so that we can live under the freedoms we are living and experiencing here in the United States. And I commit to make sure that this country is here for my grandchildren and their children in the future, and yours too. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, I want to say that to the people out there that did serve this country and uh, and uh, the first responders and people out there sacrificed for our freedoms and are there to uh, come at a moment's notice to the aid of somebody who's uh, burning in a house or someone a victim of a crime or or uh, going overseas to fight uh, for our freedom. Uh, you know, thank you for uh, your sacrifice. And uh, it's sad. And we have a responsibility, all the rest of us, to not allow what was just played there, the sickness, the sickness in our society to continue. We have got to stop it. And I'm not saying anything, you know, go beyond the wall. Uh, of course, lawfully. Lawfully, we have to figure out ways to root out this evil in our society and uh, get rid of it because it's, it's pathetic. But anyway, everybody, Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we should have a couple guests on, and uh, we'll probably end up calling a few. Uh, I think we got a United States senator I, I'm going to get a hold of that night. Uh, i got a couple of uh, ideas here. i got a couple of planned guests that are going to be on, too. So um, we called Swadwell last time, uh, Eric Swadwell's office, and talked about gun control. Uh, so uh, it should be a good show. Tuesday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be talking about the Constitution, too, and uh, whatever else sick news stories pop up in between now and then. Uh, I just want to say be safe out there, and, uh, man, we need help in America after that call. Everybody, God bless. Take care. God bless our republic.